0: to believe that the world could still be changed by just one lie. I would I touch lies by the way I live
1: today. Hey everyone, this is Steve Donnie with another episode of Legacy Podcast helping you build your legacy. This episode is going to be a recording of a message that I preached to the church in which I pastor Mount Tabor Baptist Church from 1st John Chapter 1. And this is episode number 253, if you'd like to. Go to the show notes, and uh, you'll there be able to get uh, uh, additional information about the passage and outline and uh, some other resources there. So check that out at 253, and thanks for listening. How many of you all like to take tests? Probably not very many of us. I have a, a little secret to tell you. I failed my first driving test. (laughs) Now, some of you are probably saying, well, that's not a surprise. (laughs) Uh, But others of you are saying, oh, what a shame. But uh, of course, that was many years ago. And um, believe it or not, the thing that got me was that I sped in my driver's test. (laughs) Uh, I didn't know what the speed limit was, I should have known. But I went over the speed limit. That's an automatic failure. So uh, I didn't pass the test. You know, one of the good things about taking tests, though, is that if you actually pass the test or you do well on the test, it gives you some encouragement. It gives you some hope. And the reality of it is in the scriptures that we are told to test ourselves. In fact, in uh, Second Corinthians, chapter 13, verse five, it says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourself that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? That's what first John is all about. He is writing to believers and in the process of writing to believers, he's giving them a series of tests to determine whether or not you are genuinely in the faith to test whether or not you are indeed in fellowship with the Lord. The key verse of the entire letter is found in first John chapter five, verse 13, when it says this, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God. So he's writing to believers. They believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the son of God. So he's writing to believers to give them encouragement about the assurance of their salvation. So how do, we, how do we gain that encouragement? How do we gain that assurance of our salvation? Well, he actually, it's kind of hard to sometimes break down the letter because he repeats some themes over again. But the way that I have analyzed, or the best way that I have come to is that there are really five cycles of tests that he gives us in this letter to determine whether or not we are genuinely in fellowship and to give us that assurance of eternal life. Each one consists of a doctrinal test and then a an action test or a a moral test. And with each one is passed. We gain confidence in our salvation. We gain confidence that we are indeed destined for eternal life. The salvation of a believer is secure because it is in Christ. But that does not mean that our assurance is always secure. In other words, there are times at which we doubt whether or not we're genuinely saved when we're walking outside of the faith. One, one uh, great uh, catechism of the faith says it this way, true believers may have the assurance of their salvation diverse ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted, as by negligence in the persevering of it, by falling into some special sin which woundeth the conscience and grieveth the spirit, by some sudden or vehement temptation, by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light Yet are they never utterly destitute of that seed of God and that life of faith, that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart, the conscience of duty out of which by the operation of the spirit, his assurance may in due time be revived. And by the which in the meantime, they are supported from utter despair. I wish we talked like that today. Of course, we don't. That was back. Uh, 400 years ago when they spoke better english but the idea behind that is that we have this uh, confidence in our salvation based upon the way in which we conduct our life that gives us a confidence we believe certain things and we live out certain things and the combination of those two things give us that assurance and so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the first part of the first cycle and that is the doctrinal statement what are we to believe Concerning a couple of things that give us the proper assurance of our salvation. The first thing is this. Do you believe in the reality of the incarnation? Do you believe in the reality of the incarnation? We see this in verses 1 through 4. And it begins by saying this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word. Of life. That which was from the beginning, of course, speaks to the pre existent second person of the Trinity or the Godhead, that is, Jesus himself, uh, who was from the beginning. And of course, in John chapter 1, we are told in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he was with the beginning from the very beginning. He was not a created being, as some people teach, but in fact, he has always existed. Now, he has not always existed as the human Jesus. But he has always existed as the second person in the Godhead. And it says that uh, John here is testifying of his eyewitness account when it says that he has seen, he's heard, he's looked upon, his hands have handled concerning the word of life. This speaks to the reality of the material nature of Jesus. And notice the increasing aspect of these. You might hear something, but not exactly sure what it is. That you hear, but when you hear something and see something, it gives some more validity. But when you hear something, see something and then look upon something or gaze upon something, it gives you even more certainty. And then finally, if you see something, hear something, uh, hold on to it, grasp it. There is no doubt about what it is that you are seeing. And so it is here in this case. Now, John was probably writing to a. A group that um, later be called uh, the uh, Docetists, and the Docetists denied that Jesus actually came in the flesh, but that he only appeared to be in the flesh; that he didn't really possess the human material body that we all possess. And the word uh, Docetist comes from the Greek word Doceto, which means to seem or to think. No, they just he seemed to be in the flesh. But was not really there and of course John is particularly pointing out no he did indeed come in the flesh. I felt him I saw him I heard him uh, all the aspects of that he was able to understand. And then it says concerning the word of life this reminds us of Peter's words uh, when he said to Jesus where shall we go you have the words of eternal life and again in John's gospel where it tells us Jesus is the way the truth and the life and no man comes to the father except through him and then he goes on in verse 2 and he reiterates the same thing as what he's been talking about he says the life was manifested and as we see him uh, his life is manifested we have seen we bear witness and we declare to you that eternal life which was with the father and was manifested to us. And then also we see in verse three, that which we have seen and heard and declared. Do you see the repetition there? I, I've mentioned this before and hopefully by now, by the many times I have repeated it, that time you see repetition in the scripture, it's a good thing that that is the point, right? That's what he's trying to say. And so, in fact, what we find John saying in verse one, in verse two and in verse three, he's saying, look, I was an eyewitness To who Jesus was. I felt him. I saw him. He was manifested to me. It was an eyewitness encounter of him. And so indeed we can believe that he was incarnate. Uh, Eternal life which was with the Father is manifested to us. Here again we are told the pre-incarnate Christ was with the Father in eternity past. And was made manifest or made clear when he became man. And it says that the reason that he is writing these things and the reason that we can have hope in the midst of this belief of the incarnation in verse four. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full earlier in verse three. He says so that we may have fellowship one with another and our fellowship is with God. So it's this idea that we will have confidence in the fellowship of God when we believe in these things, and that that confidence in our fellowship with God and with one another will give us a joy in our relationship with Him. How often do you believe something because somebody who is actually there as an eyewitness told you about it? Maybe it's something like this where you you uh, hear, uh, this doesn't happen with fish stories, okay? Fish stories are always exaggerated. We know someone goes fishing. Oh, yeah, I caught got a huge one. You know, I had one on the line. It was probably 20, 30 pounds. You know, i never brought it in, but, you know, those are fish stories. What I'm talking about is like when someone sees a car wreck. And you say, yeah, on the way to Charlottesville, I saw this car wreck. You know, Oh, really? What was it like? And they describe it. And you believe it. Why? Because they saw it. It was an eyewitness testimony. You'll count. Now, the, the reality of it is we do not now see Jesus, do we? He's in heaven. He's sitting at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning, interceding for us. So we do not now see him, but we do have the testimony, the written down eyewitness account of those who did see him. And we can hang our hat on that and we can believe that. John chapter 20, verse 29. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet do believe. It's talking about us. We don't see him. But we do believe and Jesus said blessed are those who do this. We are blessed to believe even though we do not see because we can be partakers in the same unity with Christ and so be assured of eternal life. Although we cannot hear see behold or handle Jesus John did and we can accept his eyewitness testimony as true. Do you believe this? You know you believe if it brings you joy. That's what it says. We have fellowship with him. We believe that we can have fellowship with him. Just as John was able to have fellowship with him. Because he lived as a human being. And now is ascended into heaven. And he believes that. And so we, by uniting with his belief in that reality. We can now have fellowship. And because of that fellowship, we can have joy. That's how you know if you truly believe. If you have joy based upon this reality. Secondly, do you believe in the reality of sin? Do you believe in the reality of... Of sin, we see this uh, occurring beginning in verse five, when it says, "This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all." So the first thing that we have to understand about sin is that there is absolutely no sin with God. That's the idea of him being perfectly light and in him is no darkness at all. Darkness, of course, in the scriptures carries the idea of being associated with evil. Bad things happen at night. That's why you tell your kids, you know, get home before dark, right? Um, we, We don't want them because bad things happen at dark. But he is perfect light. There is no aspect of darkness within him. And so the standard of righteousness is perfection. One of the problems that people have today is that we... We lessen the standard. They say that, well, I'm not a sinner because, I mean, look, I'm better than so-and-so. That's not the standard. So-and-so is not our standard. The standard is the perfect, righteous, holy goodness of God. And so what does it say in verse 5? This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And then what John does is he, he gives us several different conditions. To understand whether or not we are understanding sin properly. And the first one is this. If we say, verse 6, that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. In other words, if we say that we're a Christian, we say that we're in fellowship with God, that, we, that we're that we right with God. You know, you and God, we're, you know we're, we're one, we're doing good. But then we're living like a sinner. What's it saying? That we're lying. We're not living... The truth. What fellowship does light have with darkness? You cannot live as a sinner. Or expect to have the fellowship with God. Have you ever been in the circumstances. Of known unconfessed sin. And then tried to read your Bible or pray. <laughs> it's hard isn't it? You don't really want to. Why? Because you're out of fellowship with God. Not that you have lost your salvation. But that you're out of fellowship. And there is a difference. Now when. When. You get in a fight with your spouse. Now, I don't ever fight with my spouse, Um, but um, some of you probably do. And and when you fight with your spouse, um, there's a there's a tension there, isn't there? And it seems like your your intimacy, your fellowship is is broke. That doesn't mean your marriage is over. It just means that there's a fellowship that's broke. There's a intimacy that is torn apart. And that's the way it is with us and God. When we sin, when we're involved, even though we are believers and we involve ourselves in darkness, we involve ourselves in sin. It does not mean that our relationship with God is destroyed. It just means that it's severed. There's a a tension there. There's a lack of intimacy. And that's what he's saying here in verse 6. Verse 7 gives us another condition. But if we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, isn't that interesting, the relationship there? He says if we walk in the light, he gives us fellowship with one another and he cleanses us from all sin. Well, if we're walking in the light, how do we still have sin? Well, he takes care of that uh, momentarily as well. When we're walking in accordance with the truth and the revealed will of God, our fellowship with God is not hindered and we experience the kind of communion with him. That we should. Verse 8 gives us the third condition. And it says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now there are some who teach that Christians, once they become a Christian, can no longer sin. It's called sinless perfectionism. This is not true. In fact, they are often becoming Christians. uh, You become more and more aware of your sin. At least that's the way it was with me. Uh, before I became a Christian, I thought I was pretty good. Once I became a Christian, I looked at the scriptures and said, Whoa, ho, ho, I have a, a far way to go. And uh, very often, that is the case. That's why Paul is able to say that he is the chief of sinners. He understands his sin. And so we deceive ourselves if we say that we have no sin. You know, we sin daily. Uh, we sin by the things that we do, the things that we don't do, the things that we say, the things that we don't say. We sin by omission, we sin by commission. There's all kinds of ways in which we sin. We sin in ways we don't even realize we're sinning. We sin each day. And to say that we are without sin is to deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Verse uh, verse 4 or uh, verse 9 gives us the fourth condition. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You no, know, we should daily be involved in the confession of our sins. Confession means to say the same thing about our sin that God says. If God says something's wrong. We agree with him and say, yes, it is wrong. I confess before you that it is wrong. We do not need to go to some clergy to confess our sins, but we can, through the blood of Christ and through his intercession, go directly to God to confess our sins. We should not confess our sins generally, saying, yes, I'm a sinner, but we should confess our sins particularly, particularly, In other words, we should confess each day our particular sins against him. And we should do that regularly. Notice the forgiveness is not based upon our character, but it's based upon the character of Christ. It says if we confess our sins, he is he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's good news. It's a good news that our confession uh, and our our. uh, Our inability to confess properly even uh, does not interfere with his faithfulness to forgive us. And then the fifth one is found in verse 10. It says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Again, this is similar to ones that he had said uh, earlier. But the emphasis is to say that we are even as Christians thoroughly sinful. Of course, we should be growing in holiness And will until we are finally glorified and yet that sinfulness still remains within us. We make God a liar when we say that we have no sin because he clearly says that sin is and does continue to remain in us. Sinless perfectionism is a false doctrine as I mentioned earlier. I like the way R.C. Sproul in the book Pleasing God says it. He says inevitably the air of perfectionism breeds one or usually two deadly delusions. To convince ourselves that we have achieved sinlessness, we must either suffer from a radical overestimation of our moral performance or we must seriously underestimate the requirements of God's law. The irony of perfectionism is this, though it seeks to distance itself from antinomianism, which is lawlessness, it relentlessly and inevitably comes full circle to the same error. In other words, we can't believe that we are without sin. We have to believe that there is still sin within us. And then the good news is that he doesn't leave us there. But in fact, John gives us the hope that we have in the midst of our sin. Not only does he say that we should confess our sins, but he gives us some hope with reference to Christ and his work in redeeming us. And we find this beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. So that's the first thing that we do in the midst of our sin. What, what are we instructed to do? Don't sin. In other words, we're not supposed to say, well, if we confess our sins, God's faithful and just, so that's no problem. I'll just do it confess it. That, that's, no, 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 that's not the right perspective. He says, do not sin. In fact, uh, he has commanded that teaches us that God's standard is perfection. We cannot make any excuses saying that we are not told or not given uh, what it is. That we are to do. But he does say that when we do sin. We have an advocate. Look what it says. These things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins. And the assumption is that we will sin. We have an advocate with the father. Jesus Christ. The righteous. Now what is an advocate? Uh, The actual um, word here comes from the word. The Latin. Alongside. Someone who calls, advocate. It's like vocation, a calling, right? Someone who comes alongside. The Hebrew or the Greek is the same way. It is someone who comes alongside you. In the the world in which um, John lived, it was a defense attorney. Someone who would go to court for you and speak in your behalf, defending you before the judge. But what do we have in Christ? We have the exact same thing. The enemy wants to come and to say, see, he just sinned yesterday. He's not worthy of heaven. And you know what Jesus does? He says, you're right, he's not, but I am. And I'm defending him. And so we have a defense attorney. We have an advocate for us in the midst of our sin. Uh, An advocate, according to uh, one dictionary, says it's one who is called alongside to one's aid as primary verbal object, adjective, a suggestion of capability and the ability of giving aid. And so, indeed, that is what the spirit does for us through Christ is he is our advocate. But then it goes on in verse five, in verse two, he says, and he himself is our propitiation. Now, I think some of your translations may remove that word and replace it with something that's a little bit um, easier to pronounce. <laughs> uh, that's a difficult word uh, to pronounce, but it's a great word. It's a very deep theological word. And the, the idea behind it is that it is a, an appeasement or a satisfaction. You see, God demands justice. God demands the wrath be poured out upon sin. That's what all of us deserve. But it says that uh, through Scripture that Jesus is their propitiation. He is the one who took that wrath upon himself upon the cross so that the demand for sin's punishment is satisfied through Christ. Isn't that a great word, propitiation? He is the one who satisfies the demand of righteousness upon the law. Uh, If we don't get sin right... We don't believe the truth about sin. It is impossible to have any confidence in our salvation. It is the first step in our fellowship with God. You know, back in, um, back in junior high and high school, some of you probably uh, maybe recall doing this, especially if you were a, a young man and you were trying to uh, date a girl. Uh, you would uh, get her phone number. And the first thing you'd do is you'd go home and you'd try to make a phone call, right? But it usually went like this. You had the phone number. And this of course, back when you actually had dial phones. You know, you didn't have cell phones. And of course, nowadays, we probably just text them, right? right. But uh, this was back when you actually had to call them up. And this is the way it typically went, right? You had the phone. You get the phone. And you dial the number. And you hang up. you're like, oh, I just can't do it. <laughs> All right, I'm not oh. You know, and you, just, you, can't, you can't quite muster enough strength to actually make the call. Right. Well, here's the good news. When it comes to fellowship with God, the step that we have, the first step that we have is understanding we can't do it. Understanding that we are sinful in his eyes, but it is only through the propitiation of Christ is only through his advocacy, only by him coming and defending us, even in the midst of our sin, that we can even begin to have fellowship. With God, And so we don't need to necessarily be afraid to make the call. What do we do? We call out to him in grace and say, Father, I have sinned. Remember the story about the publican that comes before uh, Jesus or comes before God in prayer. And you have the Pharisee and the publican and the Pharisee comes and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like everybody else. Thank you that I, you know, I've lived this way and I've done all these great things and I've I've. Uh, been righteous in all that I've done. I thank you. I'm not even like this tax collector over here who's a sinner. And what does it say about the tax collector? It says he comes and he beats upon his chest. And he says, "Have mercy upon me, a sinner." And what does Jesus say? He says that one went away justified. That's all that's asked of us—to understand our sin and to come before God and say, "God, I am a sinner through and through." I've sinned today. I'll sin tomorrow. Help me. But thank you that you have provided an advocate for me in Christ. There are a couple of errors that we can have when it comes to this. One is that uh, saying that there is no such thing as sin. No such thing as right and wrong. And unfortunately, in our culture today, that's that's the that's the phrase everybody says. Well, what may be right for you is not necessarily right for everybody. There are no right and wrong. Well, that's not true. The Bible is very, very clear. God's standard is what it is. The second error that can often occur is that saying that sinless perfectionism is possible. In other words, that once we become a Christian, if we sin ever after that, that's it. We're done. No hope for us after that. That's not true either, is it? And the final error is saying that sinlessness is possible or sinlessness is not possible. So why try? Well, that's not the, that's not the right error either, is it? What is it? The idea is that we are told no longer sin. But if we do sin, we have an advocate with the father and uh, he is able to be our propitiation. We should do everything we can within our strength not to sin. But when we do sin, we have an advocate, a propitiation through Christ. Right doctrine of Christ results in the fellowship of eternal life, which results in joy. Do you want to have experience fellowship with God? Believe the truth about Jesus. Believe the truth about sin. So if you pass the first test, we'll have uh, several more as we look through First John. But I trust that you have. But if not, make today the day that you believe the truth about who Jesus is and the truth about your sin. Let's pray.
0: And I think that it's time we start crying for our nation and bow our heads and pray if today you lost your life what would you leave behind what would the ones around you see what happened in the dash between your birth and death what will you do to change your legacy Like a plant one day will wither away And to this world we'll have to say goodbye But just like the plant that withers away We will leave many seeds behind If today you lost your life What would you leave behind? What would the ones around you see? What happened in the dash Between your birth and death What will you do to change your legacy If today you lost your life What would you leave behind What would the ones around you see What happened in the dash between your birth and death? What will you do to change your legacy? What will you do to change your legacy?